work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription hello everybody and welcome or should i say all aboard i'm captain mick sullivan and this is my train i mean podcast this is the episode about trains and movies and it is super fun this is our first episode of 2019 and we had some really cool stuff happen since we talked to you last uh we officially will be releasing a book in a few months which is very exciting but also i had my second son uh my wife and i welcomed our second child into the world uh back in december and boy oh boy it's taken a lot of time to get to this point but i got a new episode together and i'm happy to bring it to you i want to thank my friend mr eric from what if world you will hear his voice today telling the story of the Lumiere brothers. I also want to thank my friend Lucy. You're going to hear her mid-show. And more information on how you can participate, do something like she did as well. Be sure to subscribe, be sure to leave us a review, and be sure to enjoy. Here we go! Historians disagree on what really happened. Some say that a Parisian audience in January of 1896 panicked, wrought with fright, and filled the air with screams. Audience members fled while those remaining gasped in surprise and teetered back in their chairs, flirting with the fate of gravity in the face of their own mortifying fear. Other historians, though, say there is no evidence to support this at all. Sometimes history is hard to get straight. Many times a good story takes the place of the truth, and as we get farther and farther away from the moment in question, it gets harder and harder to know what really happened. And so historians say, on the contrary, and that this very same room was actually filled with calm people who knew exactly what they were getting into when they sat in the chairs of the makeshift theater inside the Paris Hotel. And as a result, there was no panic, no tumult, and no one running for their lives. There was barely any drama at all. The people just paid for their tickets and became a part of history. A calm, quiet, and comfortably seated part of history in this version. The men who bought these panicked, or not panicked, peoples to this room were a pair of very well-known brothers, the Lumiere brothers. Auguste and Louis Lumiere, famous for their advancements in photography, were here to share their very latest creation, and for the first time in history, people had paid to see something of this sort, which is something you've probably done many times. Before I tell you what these people saw, let's go farther back in time, to when Louis Lumiere was just 17 years old. At this age, the clever young man invented something that would change his life and help him shape the world. His father was a photographer, which was still a developing art, even though it had been pioneered in their native France over 50 years ago. The very first basic photograph had been taken from the upstairs window of a building in Paris, it was grainy and hard to see clearly, but it was still a captured picture of rooftops and cityscapes for sure. 
That was in 1826. And in the decades that followed, the technology grew, mostly in the hands of the French. Still, in 1880, developing a photograph was difficult. It was around then that Louis Lumiere invented a new kind of photographic glass plate, which was like the film of the early cameras of his time. This new format made the process of developing a photograph much, much easier and more practical for casual users. This radical invention quickly became a hit. As a result, the family immediately started selling lots of the new plates. They couldn't keep up. They hired people to help them. They couldn't keep up. They built a factory and they could still barely keep up. They sold millions of these plates a year and of course, these millions of sales led to lots of money for the family. But the Lumiere family was not the kind of family to rest on their laurels. They used this money as a way to continue innovating. In the 1890s, their father became aware of a new invention that Thomas Edison was showing in America. As is the case with most of Edison's inventions, we have to wonder just how much he actually invented the kinetoscope, but that's another story. These kinetoscopes were set up in parlors in cities like New York, and people paid to look through them in order to see some of the world's first moving pictures. The videos were short, and only one person could watch at a time. A customer basically stuck their face into a hole in a box to see the films, but that didn't stop the crowds. The earliest of Edison's films on record is called Fred Ott's Sneeze, and it is the tour de force, which, like any masterwork film, packs a world of drama, comedy, and thrilling mystery into a moving picture sure to appeal to anyone with a beating heart. Fred Ott, loyal assistant to Edison, finds himself with a major problem. He has to sneeze. Faced with a choice, he does what any brave man or woman would do in such a circumstance. He sneezes. tight, Fred. In reality, the film is shorter than that silly preview was. It's only about five seconds long, and it is quite literally a guy sneezing, which might have left someone feeling shortchanged when they paid a few hard-earned cents for such a scene. Most of the films shown to paying customers on the kinetoscope were longer, but not by much. Though the Lumière's father originally wanted to bring the kinetoscope idea to France, Auguste and Louis Lumière had another idea. They invented a moving picture camera that doubled as a projector, so a short scene could be filmed and then projected on a wall which lots of people could watch at the same time without having to cram their heads through holes. The brothers had fun with the new invention. Once, when showing it off, they used the camera to record a room full of people. The next day, they showed the same room full of people the previous day's moving picture recording of themselves. The would-be movie stars were flabbergasted. Now, by today's automatic selfie standards, that's nothing. But in the 1890s, this was absolutely incredible. Imagine seeing yourself on video for the first time, when such a thing was completely unimaginable. Most of their motion picture recordings are more basic, though. There's a famous one of workers leaving the factory the family had built to make their profitable photographic plates. It's called Workers Leaving the Lumiere Factory. There's another one called Baby Breakfast. And it is, believe it or not, a baby being fed. We can only assume it was in the morning. As you see, their titles weren't particularly imaginative, but that wasn't the point. These were documentary in nature. Unlike today's movie directors, they weren't telling a story, merely using the camera to capture a moment. 
this was still pretty exciting. It was exciting enough that the very first audiences in the world paid money to go sit in a room with strangers and watch a moving picture projected onto a large, flat surface. In most cases, they showed ten or so of their short films. Which brings us back to the night in question. Was there panic? Was there calm? We can't be certain, but there are no primary sources that describe a scene of pandemonium. Still, the story often told revolves around one of their short films shown that night, a 49-second film called Arrival of a Train at La Ciota. When the black title card disappeared, the audience cast their eyes upon a bustling outdoor train station. On screen, there were people milling about and walking to and fro. A pair of train tracks extended toward the audience and disappeared off-screen in the bottom left corner of the picture. Then the action starts. A puff of steam is the first sign the crowd saw of the giant steam engine train entering the picture. No one on the screen seemed too worried. Their concern was obviously jockeying for position to climb aboard the train. But as the train continued forward on its path along the tracks, it appeared to be getting closer, because it was in fact getting closer to the camera which recorded the event. It is said some people in the audience lost track of this fact, were overcome by the experience, confused by the perspective of the oncoming train and not completely in control of their senses. They believed that the train was not a moving image, which was new and unusual, but momentarily believed that it was in fact a train barreling towards them. And so, some say that this 1896 Parisian audience panicked, wrought with fright, and filled the air with screams! Audience members fled while those remaining gasped in surprise and teetered back in their chairs, flirting with the fate of gravity in the face of their own mortifying fear! It is one of the most often told stories in movie history, but it is probably false. Those naysaying historians were probably right. It was a monumental moment and something truly incredible to see in 1896. Nothing like it had ever been done. People were likely amazed, but they probably did not flee for their lives. Okay, now it's time for a new bit. Lucy, you have 30 seconds to tell me something cool about a person, place, or thing from the past. Ready, set, go. Washington, D.C is widely mistaken as a state, but it is not a state. It is actually a federal district. D.C. is our nation's capital and is rich and profound with history. One place that is rich with history is the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian has things from Abe Lincoln's hat to Dorothy's ruby red slippers. Out of the 17 museums and a zoo, the coolest things to me are Thomas Jefferson's desk, the Wright brothers' airplane, and Teddy Roosevelt's teddy bear. That's just how spectacular Washington, D.C. is. Thanks, Lucy. I couldn't agree more. If you would like to do this, you have 30 seconds to tell us something cool. Go to thepastandthecurious.com for more details. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. You heard it. It is quiz time. We're halfway through the show, and it's a train quiz. So here we go. Question number one. Legend has it that before an 1896 football game between Auburn and Georgia Tech, Auburn students did what to the train tracks that the Georgia Tech football team was using to travel to the game? In the middle of the night, a group of student pranksters greased a long stretch of the tracks with oil and lard. So when the train tried to stop and let the football team off to play the game, 
Well, it couldn't stop, and it just kept sliding and sliding down the track. According to Auburn's website, the Georgia Tech team had to walk five miles back to town to play the game, which they then lost. Question number two. Unlike the dragons, magical maps, and invisibility cloak from the Harry Potter series, the Hogwarts Express train is actually real. In what country can you ride the actual train from the movies? Though it doesn't actually depart from station nine and three quarters or lead to Hogwarts, the West Highland train line in Scotland will take you through some very familiar scenes if you've watched the Harry Potter movies. And question number three, the third and final question. The longest possible single train journey in the world begins in Moscow and ends in what city? Without getting off of a train, you can leave Moscow and travel 10,214 kilometers or 6,346 miles all the way to Pyongyang, North Korea. The journey happens once a week. The longest journey possible by train if you do change train cars would be a trip from Portugal to Vietnam and it would take you about 14 days to complete. In the 1930s, people passing the rippling waters of the Roe River in Oregon could catch a glimpse of a Civil War train just below the water's surface. This was peculiar though, because if you know anything about the Civil War, you know that Oregon was not a place where battles were fought. A train expert though might take a look at that and say, no, that's definitely not a Civil War train. It's actually from the 1880s and has been modified to look like a train that was 20 years older. Yeah, okay, thanks spoil sport, but he's right. It actually wasn't from the Civil War, but it was made to look that way. Still, the question is, how did it wind up in the bottom of a river in Oregon. Funny story. Plenty of people can say they had an unusual childhood. However, not very many can say they got their name from Harry Houdini, or that this name came as a result of a terrifying childhood accident. But Buster Keaton, he was named Joseph at his birth. No one would know him by that name for the rest of his life, though. His parents were vaudeville performers, which was a popular entertainment before the days of TVs and radios, not to mention internet and smartphones. Now, vaudeville shows included acts of music and comedy and magic and drama and more, all staged for a live theater audience. And when Joseph was just a baby, he was packed along as his parents performed with a vaudeville group that included legendary escape artist Harry Houdini. Young Joseph Keaton was a rambunctious and fearless little fellow, and a story he often told recounts how, one day, this characteristic put him in the position of staring down a long flight of stairs without batting either of his big brown baby eyes. His parents were not close enough to react or didn't really care about the long fall that awaited the child. Either way, they were not winning any Best Parent of the Year awards. Now, in life, there is a right way to use steps, and a whole bunch of wrong ways to use steps. And on this day, Keaton demonstrated one of the wrong ways. One by one, top over toes, the poor little guy thumped and thudded his way down every step. To anyone watching, the tumbling toddler probably seemed to move in slow motion. And what must have seemed like an eternity later, he finally, mercifully, came to rest at the bottom. And the boy, 
simply sat up, looked a little dazed, and shook himself back to normal. No tears, no pain, and no problem. The adults nearby breathed a sigh of relief. Years later, Keaton said it was Harry Houdini himself who scooped up the boy off of the ground and exclaimed, Well, that was a real buster. It became both a nickname and a way of life. You see, Buster just seemed to have a knack for falling and not getting hurt. In almost no time, he was on stage with his parents, and the comedy act became a family affair. Sure, keeping him on stage with them was one way to keep the little squirt out of trouble, but they also made use of the three-year-old's natural abilities. Part of the act required him to disobey his father on stage, and luckily that came naturally to him, as it does to most three-year-olds. The other part of this act required him to be picked up and thrown through the air. Nothing like this would be allowed to happen today, and it certainly shouldn't, but right there for all to see, Buster's dad would pick him up and heave him across the stage, hurl him out a fake window, even chuck him into the audience. With a limber body and a straight face, the kid just got right back up and at it, time and time again. The audience didn't know what to make of it at first. It was certainly shocking to see a little kid go sailing across the room. But when he got back up and asked for more, well, that was pretty entertaining. Anytime someone inquired about Buster's well-being, he could show that his falls left him with no bumps, bruises, or broken bones. He was a professional tumbler. He flew across vaudeville stages for as long as he reasonably could, but eventually he got far too heavy for his old man to send sailing. It was for the best, because by the time Buster was a young man, silent films had taken the world by storm. They quickly replaced vaudeville as the most popular entertainment, even without sound. The childhood career he had spent making people laugh with his straight face and perfect pratfalls put him in a great position for the new art form. The seemingly indestructible young man was tailor-made for the screen, and before long he was one of the biggest stars. And it wasn't just because people couldn't believe the stunts he pulled, he was also hilariously funny and could tell a story without saying a single word. But seriously, it's a wonder he didn't get hurt more often than he did. Grabbing a hold of a passing car to escape pursuers is a terrible idea, but Buster did it. Falling down a flight of stairs is a terrible idea, but Buster did it. On purpose this time. Running inside of a steamboat's moving paddle wheel like a giant gerbil is also a terrible idea, but Buster did that too. But these stunts were nothing compared to his most daring feat caught on film. This idea was so dangerous that the filmmaking crew was convinced he would die. Not wishing to see silent film star Buster become a silent squishy pancake on the side of the road, the cameraman actually started the camera and walked off of the site. He couldn't bear to watch it. Spoiler alert, Buster lived. Now, you may have seen this scene because it's pretty famous. Buster saunters onto the screen and stands directly in front of a house. And it looks like a normal house. It's got a door and a mailbox and windows. There's a window on the second floor, which is open. Soon, though, the viewer notices that the facade, the front of the building, is falling towards Buster. This was happening in real life with no special effects. The two-ton wooden structure was made to fall, and if he was off at all by his calculations and not standing in the exact right spot, the cameraman's worst fears would come true. But despite being daring, Buster was not reckless. The building fell to the ground, and when the cloud of dust settled, there was Buster, standing in the hole of the open second-story window, very much alive. 
Now, Buster was so good that he got more and more control of his movies. But he wasn't just a stone-faced star and a super stuntman. The little kid who used to get thrown around by his dad had also become his own writer and director. And in 1926, he decided to make his masterpiece. If you think the Civil War is a strange subject for a silent comedy film, well, you're not alone. Most of the theater audiences did too. The General was not very popular when it was released, but today it is regarded as one of Buster's greatest achievements and one of the best movies ever made. It's actually based on a real event from the Civil War when Union spies stole a Confederate train called the General, and they were chased by a trainload of Confederates through Georgia and Tennessee. Buster loved trains, so he knew that he could have fun making a movie around this train chase story. So most of the movie actually takes place aboard the two trains in pursuit of one another. And some of the stunts are so amazing they are hard to believe, or at least to understand the precision it took to get them right. Like when Buster watches helplessly as a cannon he loaded accidentally fires on his own train, missing spectacularly at the very last second. Aside from being a really incredible movie, and one that is laugh out loud hilarious, it boasts Buster's most ambitious scene ever, a climactic moment which also just so happens to be the most expensive scene ever shot for a silent movie. In 1929, the scene cost $40,000, which would be well over half a million dollars today. In the film, it goes like this. Buster and his girlfriend have crossed a trestle bridge high above a river aboard his recently recovered train engine, the General. Not far behind, their enemies are in pursuit aboard a train of their own. Buster hops out on the high bridge and pours kerosene over the wooden structure, lighting it on fire and fleeing on his train in hopes that the burned out bridge will prevent his pursuers from pursuing him any longer. But when the enemy arrives, despite the flames weakening the bridge, the captain gives the order to cross it anyway. He just won't let them get away. The men gulp and disaster ensues. Splash. In reality, it was a very well-planned movie scene. But as you might imagine, they only had one chance to get it right. Once that bridge was broken and that train was underwater, well, that was the end of it, like it or not. Knowing it was going to be a spectacle, residents from nearby towns and visitors from beyond, 4,000 in all, came to take their only chance at seeing such a crazy sight. The bridge was actually structurally weakened by more than just the kerosene fire from the movie. Crews sawed and cut certain pieces of the support, so it was guaranteed to fail under the enormous weight of the steam engine. By the time the train rolled across the bridge, there was no one on board. Buster, a stickler for detail in reality, didn't want the train to look empty, so dummies were made with papier-mâché heads, giving the appearance of soldiers on board for the camera shot people in the crowd of 4,000 didn't realize that these were just dummies on the train. So when the train chugged into view, there was some concern for the men that they thought were on board. That concern turned to fear when the bridge started cracking. Great splinters of wood busted off and fell below. The train lurched and chugged. Its path, which had just been flat, was now a deep crevice, like two hills and a valley on a child's drawing. The struggle goes on longer than you might think, but it can take a while to bring down a giant. And then it happens. The steaming train, the tracks beneath it, and the giant bridge tumble far and fast, splashing down like a meteor in the river. Waves crash to the shore, and the audience finally breathed. Well, not everyone. 
One woman who was watching saw one of those paper mache heads go floating down the river, and she thought it belonged to a real man. So she let out an appropriately real scream. Ah! Reports say that then she passed out. The scene is magnificent to watch and lives in history as a benchmark of film. The train, though, was a behemoth, and when the movie was over, well, it was too much to deal with, so they just left it there in the river, and it sat there for a decade as a curiosity for travelers and passerbys to see. But when World War II happened, America was in need of any and all metal for the war effort, so it was then that the train was excavated and deconstructed for scrap. All that remains in the Roe River today is just some of the train track, which is partially visible when the water is low. But if you really want to see it, you should just watch the movie. See the engine puffing, boy, she's making time. That old train is wearing out the rail, rail, rail. Headed for the mountain that she's got to climb. Bringing in the Georgia mail. 90 miles an hour, and she's gaining speed. Listen to that whistle moaning, wail, wail, wail. Has she got the power? I say yes indeed. Bringing in the Georgia mail. Travel, watch her spin the jack. You ought to put that engineer in jail, jail, jail. Has he got her rolling? Watch her ball the jack. Bringing in the Georgia mail. Rocking and a reeling, spouting off that steam. Stoke the fire and hope the brakes don't fail, fail, fail. Serving all the people, listen to her scream. Bringing in the Georgia mail. have it episode 28 of the past and the curious my name is mick sullivan and i have to thank you for listening i also have to thank my good friend mr eric from what if world for his help i was really in a bind i hadn't booked anybody uh because of this baby thing you know uh he did a fantastic job you should check out his show what if world as well as all of our good friends from kids listen I also have to thank Lucy for her You Have 30 Seconds bit. If you would like to participate in You Have 30 Seconds, it's pretty simple, but there are some instructions on our website, thepastandthecurious.com. Basically, you need to get excited and tell us about something you love from history in 30 seconds. I have some Patreon people to thank. Bridget and Graham, thank you. Xander and Danica, thank you again. Regis, thank you. Oh, and I have some Patreon on shout outs team true odon team, team true odon oh. thank you and solomon got right solomon solomon i have to thank you solomon got right thank you so much thank you thanks again if you want to help us out on Patreon, you can find that on our website, or you can just tell somebody about our show. Tell somebody, leave a review, hit subscribe. We are so excited to be able to do this for you. Thank you very much. That's my baby crying. That means I got to go. Yeah.